Well, good evening. Uh, thank you for um, inviting me. <clears throat> the Australian Center for Health Law Research, I have to admit, I keep jumbling the words around uh, which order they go in, but the Australian Center for Health Law Research has invited me to give this lecture this evening, and I'm very grateful to them for that invitation. Odd as it may sound, I always appreciate an opportunity to speak about assisted dying. Uh, but I especially appreciate the opportunity for a conversation about assisted dying in Australia, particularly at this moment in time when it seems to be a topic of extremely lively debate here. I'm going to jump right in because I've got a lot to share with you, and I want to be sure that we have a good amount of time at the end for discussion. So my plan is to provide you with an oversight of assisted dying in Canada, past, present, and future and then offer some reflections on the lessons for Australia that might be drawn from the Canadian experience to date. And then we can explore together anything I've left out that you're curious about or anything that has struck you as particularly interesting that you want to pursue. So first, the past, when assisted dying was clearly illegal. In the distant past, assisted dying was prohibited by the Federal Criminal Code. Sue Rodriguez was a woman with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is a degenerative neurological condition. And she challenged the prohibitions under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. She was unsuccessful at the Supreme Court of Canada by the slimmest of margins, five to four. Um, and so the case was put to rest and we had to wait and see what else would happen. Along the way, there was also a number of failed attempts to pass legislation that would have permitted some assisted dying. And there was also a special Senate committee on euthanasia and assisted suicide, but it too did not end up recommending any changes to the law. Then if we look at the middle distance past, we can see strong and increasing public support for decriminalization. There's been strong majority support for assisted dying now for decades, growing ever stronger. We can also see a growing body of evidence from permissive regimes demonstrating that the feared slippery slopes have not materialized. There are also significant new decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada on various sections of the Charter. So for example, introducing new principles of fundamental justice and thereby opening up the possibility of new arguments being made in court, such as the argument that the prohibitions limit more people's rights than is necessary to do in order to realize the objective of protecting vulnerable persons. And finally, an expert panel of the Royal Society of Canada on end-of-life decision-making recommended the decriminalization of assisted dying. Moving closer then to the present, there were two monumental developments. First, Quebec engaged in a long consultative process, which I would note was catalyzed by physicians, and it ended with an act respecting end-of-life care, which regulated medical aid in dying as a form of health care. This legislation came into force in December 2015, and as of last July, there had already been 166 cases in Quebec. The second development, in the rest of Canada, we were following the case of Carter v. Canada through the courts. Kay Carter was a woman with spinal stenosis who made the decision that her suffering had become too much, and she asked her family to take her to Switzerland for an assisted suicide. They did, and they also then subsequently became the first named plaintiffs in the case that would change the law in Canada. Then Gloria Taylor, a woman with ALS, like Sue Rodriguez, who also wanted an assisted death, joined the case, 
and the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, representing suffering Canadians more generally, effectively carried the case. The argument was that the criminal code prohibitions on assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia violated the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, the plaintiffs were successful at trial. We lost on appeal, but it was only on a technical point that whether the trial judge was actually allowed to override the Supreme Court of Canada when they had made, already made a decision in the Rodriguez case. But then we were successful again at the Supreme Court of Canada. And the court ruled nine to nothing that the criminal code prohibitions violated the charter insofar as they prohibit physician-assisted dying for the following. Competent adult person who clearly consents to the termination of life and has a grievous and irremediable medical condition, including an illness, disease, or disability that causes enduring suffering that is intolerable to the individual in the circumstances of his or her condition. And irremediable, they added, does not require the patient to undertake treatments that are not acceptable to the individual. The court gave the government 12 months, so to February 6, 2016, within which to craft new legislation should they wish to do so. And it's important to note that the federal government actually didn't have to do anything if they didn't want to. Now, in the meantime, three groups were tasked by various levels of government was studying the question of how best to regulate assisted dying in response to the Carter decision. And two of the three of them were tasked also with making recommendations. The first, a federal panel appointed by then Prime Minister Stephen Harper, also a provincial territorial expert advisory group, and finally a special joint committee of the House and the Senate at the federal level in Canada. They all issued reports, the latter two with recommendations. And the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group recommended that the government do not go narrower than Carter in the eligibility criteria, do include mental illness, advance requests, immature minors, do establish a duty to transfer care on conscientiously objecting providers. The Joint Committee issued similar recommendations varying only in the, in the recommendation that there be a two-year delay in the coming into force of the provisions in relation to mature minors. We then had a bizarre period uh, in which we had a change of government. So we had an election and then a change of government. And not surprisingly, the new government went back to the Supreme Court of Canada and said, hey, we've only just taken over here. You can't expect us to pull together legislation on assisted dying that quickly. Uh, and so can we please have an extension? They asked for a six-month extension, and they were given a four-month extension on the coming into force of the Carter decision. And during that window between February, which was the end of the first 12 months, and then the four-month extension, the court said, um, Individuals must have the ability to go to court and get a constitutional exemption. So you could have access through the courts during the period of the extension. And we had about uh, 17 of those cases go through where courts applied the Carter criteria and people were able to access assisted dying while we waited for the legislation. Now, in April, ultimately, the federal government introduced Bill C-14 and a firestorm ensued, in no small part because the government did go narrower than Carter, it did not include mature minors or advance requests, and it did not establish a duty to transfer care. Although, to be fair, that actually lies outside their jurisdiction. A furious 
debate ensued. Attempts were made in the House to amend the bill to make it be less restrictive. They failed. The Senate sent an amended, less restrictive bill back to the House, but the House rejected the more permissive amendments. And finally, the Senate conceded and passed the House's restrictive bill. So the legislation was passed and came into force on June 17, 2016. So here we are with a law that is narrower than that recommended by the Royal Society of Canada Expert Panel, the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group, the Special Joint Committee of the House and the Senate, the amendments sought by the Senate, and I would argue narrower than that required by the substance of the Carter decision itself. So that brings us to the present. Medical assistance in dying is clearly legal in some circumstances in Canada now. So let me run over a few of the key elements of the federal legislation. Medical assistance in dying is the umbrella term that includes both voluntary euthanasia and assisted suicide. It's defined in the legislation as follows. The administering by a medical practitioner or nurse practitioner of a substance to a person at their request that causes their death, so you would know that as voluntary euthanasia, and also the prescribing or providing by a medical practitioner or nurse practitioner of a substance to a person at their request so that they may self-administer the substance and doing so cause their own death. Now recognizing the scarcity of physicians in Canada, particularly in rural and remote communities, as well as the competencies and the accountabilities of nurse practitioners, both physicians and nurse practitioners are allowed to provide medical assistance in dying in Canada. According to the new legislation, only those who meet the following criteria can have access to medical assistance in dying. So patients must be eligible for health services funded by the government in Canada, or they would be but for a minimum period of residence or a waiting period. So that's to avoid what's colloquially known as death tourism. They must be at least 18 years old, be capable of making decisions with respect to their health, have made a voluntary request, have given informed consent to receive medical assistance in dying after having been informed of the means available to relieve suffering, including palliative care. They must also have a grievous and irremediable medical condition. This is further explained in the legislation as follows. They have a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability. They are in an advanced state of weakening, oh, now this is a different word, advanced state of irreversible decline in capability that illness, disease, or disability, or that state of decline causes them enduring physical or psychological suffering that is intolerable to them and that cannot be relieved under conditions that they consider acceptable, and that their natural death become reasonably foreseeable, taking into account all of their medical circumstances without a prognosis necessarily having been made as to the specific length of time that they have remaining. So turning now from the eligibility criteria to some key procedural safeguards, there must be a 10-day waiting period between the day the first request was signed and the day medical assistance in dying is provided, unless death or the loss of capacity is imminent. And the patient must be given the opportunity to withdraw consent and indeed must explicitly reconfirm the consent immediately before medical assistance in dying is provided. Conscience was, of course, the subject of enormous debate in relation to the legislation. The legislation itself says the following. It says, nothing in this legislation affects the charter guarantee of freedom of conscience and religion. 
and nothing compels an individual to provide or assist in providing medical assistance in dying. And basically, this is all the federal government had the jurisdiction to do because this issue is, it actually rests with the provinces and territories. So they've been left to regulate the conscience issue. And they're creating quite a controversial patchwork uh, as we speak. The legislation also establishes the foundation uh, for retrospective oversight. Providers have a duty to file information on every written request for medical assistance in dying. This is not yet in force because the paperwork, the, the system hasn't been set up. And the legislation also imposes some obligations on the Minister of Health as she must make regulations about the provision, collection, and analysis, and reporting of data. And after consultation with the provinces and territories, she has to establish guidelines on information to be included on death certificates so that we can track. The legislation also provides that the Ministers of Justice and Health must, by December 17th, initiate uh, independent reviews relating to mature minors, so those are individuals under the age of majority who nonetheless have decision-making capacity. Uh, also requests made in advance of loss of capacity, so for example, uh, someone upon the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And requests where mental illness is the sole underlying medical condition. And no more than two years after the initiation of these reviews, these reports with their recommendations must be presented to both houses of parliament. Finally, while not in the legislation itself, the federal government has also promised to increase support for palliative and end-of-life care and to work with the provinces and territories to establish a pan-Canadian system of access. This would be designed to facilitate transfers of care uh, in the face of conscientious objection so that you would um, ensure transfers of care, you would protect the conscience of objecting providers, and you would also uh, protect the privacy of willing providers. So that's where we are from a legal perspective today. Now you might be wondering uh, what comes next. Well, next we have to face the challenges of implementing the legislation, and we have to deal with several outstanding legal issues. We still need to sort out data gathering, for instance, what goes on a medical certificate of death, what information needs to be reported and to who, uh, medical assistance in dying protocols, what drugs, what are the dosages, and so on. The licensing of the drug for self-administered medical aid in dying, uh, the most appropriate drug is actually not available in Canada. Uh, who's going to pay for the drugs, for the services of the healthcare providers? How will the promised system for transfers of care in the face of conscientious objection be managed? The education of healthcare professionals, lawyers, and the public. So, because medical schools, nursing, pharmacy, law schools will all need to develop curricula. The Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Canadian College of Family Physicians will need to develop competencies and training programs, and the same for nurse practitioners and pharmacists. And we also have to correct a major failing of the work to date and engage indigenous communities in implementation. So lots of groups have been very active, but there's clearly still a lot to do. There are also two key outstanding legal issues to be resolved, specifically conscientious objection and the eligibility criteria. First, we're gonna to have to get clear on whether healthcare providers have a legal obligation to inform patients about medical aid and dying to transfer care to a provider who is willing to conduct an assessment and if the patient is eligible, provide medical assistance in dying. 
and or arrange an effective referral. We're going to have to figure out whether publicly funded healthcare institutions have a legal duty to transfer patients or allow the provision of medical assistance in dying within their walls or indeed provide it themselves inside the institution. The battlegrounds for these issues are going to be the health professional regulatory bodies revising their guidelines, the provincial territorial governments deciding whether to introduce legislation to create statutory obligations for providers, and whether to insist upon the provision by institutions through, for instance, their memorandum of understanding with the government. Ensuring access to medical assistance in dying may be made a condition of the transfer of federal funds that are currently the subject of heated debate, heated discussion in our health accord negotiations. And of course, litigation has actually already started uh, as the Ontario College of Physicians and Surgeons have guidelines requiring effective referral, and these are being challenged by a consortium of religious providers. And patients too may litigate if it turns out that access is being severely hampered by the exercise of freedom of conscience by individuals or institutions. And recent news reports certainly suggest that this is happening, although we don't have good data yet. The second major outstanding legal issue concerns the eligibility criteria. The government chose to exclude mature minors, requests made in advance of a loss of capacity, and it thinks it excluded individuals whose sole condition is a mental illness. They also baked some exclusions into the legislation by saying that medical assistance in dying is only available to those whose conditions are incurable, who are in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability, and whose natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. Now there will be workarounds for some of the still-to-be-determined issues, specifically, for instance, advanced requests made by individuals with Alzheimer's disease. We will see those who can uh, where provincial territorial legislation allows, refuse food and water, oral food and water through advanced directives. Others will seek medical assistance in dying or commit suicide without any assistance earlier than they otherwise would um, desire to die, but before they lose capacity. There will also be workarounds for the issues with no planned review. Individuals will commit suicide without assistance. Those without, with money, will travel to Switzerland. Some will request and be given palliative sedation. That is deep and continuous sedation paired with a refusal of artificial hydration and nutrition. Others, as we have already seen in Quebec, will stop eating for long enough to get close enough to death to qualify or to make death certain enough that they qualify for medical assistance in dying. There will be battlegrounds as well Specifically, over the next two and a half years, there will be these independent reviews of the exclusion of mature minors, advance requests, and mental illness as a sole underlying condition. So advocates on all sides of these issues will attempt to persuade the panels and then ultimately Parliament to ensure that the legislation reflects their position on those issues. And then if any of those three exclusions remain in the legislation after the review process, there will, without a doubt, be charter challenges launched on the grounds that the exclusions are discriminatory, for example, on the basis of age or mental disability, and that they violate the right to life, liberty, and security of the person. 
there is already a charter challenge being made to some of the exclusions that are not subject to independent reviews, specifically to the requirements that the patient's condition be incurable, patient must be in an advanced state of irreversible decline in capability, and their natural death must have become reasonably foreseeable. So contrast the Supreme Court of Canada declaration that I showed you earlier with the provisions of the federal legislation that I also showed you. There is no incurable in the Carter Declaration. There is no advanced state of irreversible decline in capability in the Carter Declaration. There is no reasonably foreseeable in the Carter Declaration. So included in the Carter Declaration, and as will be argued, required by the Charter, but excluded by the legislation are the following. Someone who's had two unsuccessful rounds of chemo refusing a third, not incurable. A traumatic injury five years ago, no degeneration. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, death is too uncertain, it's very unpredictable. Parkinson's, ALS, MS, Huntington's, when death is too far off. And even Kay Carter, who the decision was named after, Carter v. Canada, um, if she was 60 instead of 89, death would be too far off and she wouldn't be, have access. So the charter challenge is being brought by Julia Lamb, who's a young woman with a progressive neurodegenerative condition, and the BC Civil Liberties Association, again on behalf of many others, and they're all represented by the same legal team that worked together on Carter. This challenge will focus on the light blue circle, those people who the Supreme Court of Canada said in Carter must not be prevented from having access to medical assistance in dying, but who will not have access under the legislation. And with that, I'd offer a few uh, final reflections on the Canadian experience before trying to pull some lessons out for Australia. First, much has been accomplished. The majority of those who are likely to ultimately desire medical assistance in dying are included in the legislation. Approximately 400 people have been able to access medical assistance in dying to date. An unknown number, but much higher than 400, have been comforted to know that medical assistance in dying would or will be available to them should or when they reach the point of enduring an intolerable suffering. So there are those who actually access and then you add to that those who get a prescription but don't ultimately use it. You add to that those who make a request and qualify but don't ultimately invoke for access. And then you have this massive group who never make the request but are relieved to know that should they get into a situation where they felt they needed it, they would have access. But still much does remain to be done in Canada. But with that review, of Canada, let's turn to some lessons for Australia. First, I would say to the advocates of decriminalization of assisted dying, be patient and be adaptable. In Canada, we concurrently worked on litigation, legislation, and prosecutorial charging guidelines, all before anybody wanted to talk to us about those things. We wanted to be ready to go through the crack in a window of opportunity we saw. Because if you wait for the window to be open before you start doing the work, drafting the arguments, drafting the legislation, and so on, by the time you get back, you get back to the people who cracked open that window, by the time you get that work done, the window will have closed again. So we were patient, uh, and then we took the litigation path when it opened, and then we took the legislation path when it opened. 
Second, prepare the foundations for law reform initiatives. It was essential to our success in Carter that we were able to access robust empirical evidence on the experience with assisted dying around the world, as well as well-developed legal and ethical arguments about why assisted dying should be decriminalized. It was also important for the legislative process that followed that it was clear that there was very strong public support for the Carter decision and more generally for assisted dying. Third, to the legislators contemplating the issue, consult and engage broadly. For example, the Canadian government did not consult with the regulators of physicians, but rather just consulted with the Canadian Medical Association. If they had consulted with those who are tasked with regulating physicians, they would have been advised not to use the criteria of natural death is reasonably foreseeable. And had they followed that advice, they would have avoided the firestorm that greeted their draft legislation and indeed the charter challenge to the legislation that has now been commenced. It's also essential to be re respectful of the heterogeneity in communities. Remember that the loudest voice doesn't necessarily articulate the most widely held position. A good example of this in Canada is with respect to persons with disabilities. There was a very vocal group representing persons with disabilities and arguing for as restrictive a approach as possible in the legislation. Yet there are many people with disabilities who believe that the most restrictive approach is patronizing, paternalistic, and infantilizing. Remember also to consult with Indigenous communities. In Canada, and I understand here too, they lack access to health services, they are confronting a suicide epidemic, and they have some quite different cultural beliefs and values. In Canada, they were not adequately engaged in the conversations about decriminalization and implementation of medical assistance in dying. And so we're now playing catch up and trying to undo misinformation and mistrust. Fourth, prepare the infrastructure for assisted dying. It's essential to develop a mechanism for identifying willing providers. They can feel at risk for stigmatization by their colleagues and attack from opponents of assisted dying. But in order to ensure access for patients, you need to know who and where the willing providers are. It's also essential to develop a transfer of care system if you're going to allow any conscientious objection by providers and or publicly funded healthcare institutions, which I imagine is where you will go in Australia. Many provinces and territories in Canada are scrambling to set up such systems now. You will also need to make sure the most appropriate drugs are licensed. We only realized after the fact that cecobarbital, which is the most appropriate drug for self-administered medical assistance in dying, is not available in Canada. So we are facing very real barriers uh, for access to those who wish to self-administer. It's also important to establish educational programs for health professionals, lawyers, and the public. Everybody needs to understand what the law is, what their rights and obligations are, and providers need to know how to deliver medical assistance in dying. You also need to ensure that support systems have been put in place for providers as well as patients and their families. We are, we're playing catch up on both of these infrastructure pieces. Medical assistance in dying is legal, but not everybody has the information or the supports that they need. It's also essential to establish the infrastructure for the oversight system. It's important for accountability and transparency and trust 
for all cases to be reviewed. Also, death certificates have to be modified and instructions given on how to complete death certificates. What is the manner of death? What is the underlying cause of death? What are the antecedent causes? These steps enable robust data gathering, analysis, and reporting, which again is essential for accountability and transparency and having and deserving the trust of the public. Again, while these issues were flagged for the Canadian authorities, they did not get out ahead of them. And so we are, in a sense, building the ship while sailing it. And that is not ideal. Level. Fifth, I would, I would say beware of unintended negative consequences that can accompany particular turns of phrase in legislative drafting and particular positions taken on substantive issues in the debate about criteria for access and procedural safeguards. Here's what we've seen. If capacity is required at the time of provision, for example, you will need to reduce the person's pain meds so that they can regain capacity at the end. We had a patient in Vancouver who had, was, had spinal stenosis, incredibly painful condition, and when not fully medicated, would scream at any touch. He had to have his fentanyl or his drugs reduced so that he could be capable to do the, rec to do the reconfirmation at the last moment. So he was in agony. He was brought into a state of, by definition, enduring an intolerable suffering. Imagine also you have a patient who's met all the requirements, including the 10-day wait period. So they meet that on the Friday. And then the physician, their physician is not available until the Monday. They lose capacity on the weekend. They're then stranded in a state of unending, enduring, and intolerable suffering. If you have waiting periods, Patient unexpectedly loses capacity during the waiting period, and so cannot have access, and so is stranded again in a state of enduring and intolerable suffering. If you limit access to reasonably foreseeable or terminal or end of life, a patient with a degenerative neurological condition whose death is not close enough may feel compelled to do what's called VSED. It's common enough it has an acronym. It's voluntary stopping of eating and drinking to get close enough to qualify. And we had a man in Quebec who starved himself for 53 days and stopped drinking for eight days in order to be close enough so that he could be considered at the end of life, which is Quebec criteria, and qualify for medical assistance in dying. And if you allow providers and institutions to opt out, you can be abandoning patients in a really dramatic way. Picture a patient who has lived in an institution for three years. All their friends, all their supports are there. And they are then transferred, because the institution objects, they're transferred to another facility to die among strangers. Also, picture a patient who is fragile and suffering extreme pain on movement. He is taken by ambulance two hours away to another facility in agony all the way there so that the transfer can be affected, so that the medical assistance in dying can be provided in an institution that is willing to provide. Such cruel consequences are profoundly troubling, and they're all avoidable. Finally, I would say, take the opportunity of assisted dying being on the legislative agenda to also address related end-of-life issues. The Canadian legislation only deals with medical assistance in dying. We did not do this. We did not resolve these issues. 
So for instance, unilateral withholding and withdrawal of potentially life-sustaining treatment. This is where potentially life-sustaining treatment is withheld or withdrawn without the wishes or against the wishes of the patient and the patient's family. I know that is controversial here. It's not settled law. Palliative sedation. Can you provide deep and continuous sedation combined with the withholding of artificial nutrition and hydration? For instance, for a patient with a neurodegenerative condition who's not expected to die for years, but whose suffering has become enduring and intolerable. The legal status of palliative sedation in these complex situations is uncertain. And V said, voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. Can patients stop eating and drinking until death? Can they refuse not only artificial hydration and nutrition, which they can, but also oral feeding through an advanced directive? We have a case of a woman who refused oral feeding and hydration through an advanced directive uh, should she went at the point where she, she was stage seven and, and stage Alzheimer's, and the institution she's in is insisting upon spoon feeding her. Now, the recent Victoria report recommends addressing at least some of these issues, and they're to be commended for doing so. End-of-life decision-making is best seen as a spectrum of care, and we should have clear laws about the entire spectrum so that we can best care for all patients at the end of life. We do not, you do not. Yet both of our countries can and should. So those are some of the lessons that I bring from across that very big pond. And uh, with that, I will turn the floor over to you for questions and discussion. And I won't be able to see you. So. Thank you, Jocelyn. Um, that's tremendous to see such clarity about the Canadian law and also how you got to where you are today and some of the outstanding um, challenges that you guys have, have got. Um, so it, we've got plenty of time now for questions from the floor. Um, might see if we can do something about the, the lights. Is that a possibility so we can see people from the floor? Anyway, I'll leave that with you. Um, so if you do have a question, could you put your hand up, please, and then say, uh, who, say your name and where you're from? Thank you. So, gentlemen there. And there are two roving, uh, roving mics. So, thank you. Um, my name's Trevor Bell. I'm from the Secular Party. And um, just thinking about the opponents to reform, and you briefly mentioned religious groups, and I'm just wondering, I suspect that they were a major opponents to the reform. Is that the case? And were there any other groups that were particularly against reform? Sure, yeah. So religious groups are the, I would say, the principal objectors to medical assistance in dying now. It used to be broader because there was also a group who objected on the grounds of concerns about slippery slopes. But the evidence for slippery slopes has just been debunked. And it was tested in court. The trial decision had all that evidence in front of it, and she said there is no evidence of slippery slope. So what you're left with is religious groups in particular. Um, you also had a vocal group representing persons with disabilities who still believed in the slippery slope, but also not necessarily slippery slope, but were concerned about abandonment and concerned about messaging. So that if you suggest that somebody, if you, if you allow people to say, my life is no longer worth living because I have these severe disabilities, what does that say to people who are choosing to live with severe disability? And there's, there, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that 
argument. I just don't think that the way you respond to it is by not allowing uh, medical assistance in dying. A hugely important difference between Canada and Australia in relation to this, though, is that the government didn't have any choice. So the court said the prohibition is unconstitutional. So it wasn't as if they could just go back in and pass a law that said, yes, it is. We, we were prohibiting it all over again. Now what they did was they did something a little narrower than Carter, but they still, there was no debate about whether we're going to have medical assistance in dying. The debate was about how we're going to do it. And so those groups have, couldn't uh, mobilize and make us not have it. Uh, I think that would be the best way to distinguish. Professor Downing, my name is Spencer Gear. I'm a retired counsellor and also a Christian minister with a, with a doctorate in theology. All right? Firstly, I've got a few issues to raise with you. You're, I, I really appreciated what you presented of Canada. Some of my study has been in British Columbia, but it seems as though you've given a very one-sided view. I don't, I don't hear you saying these are the problems with euthanasia. See, one of the fundamentals is, even if you use a modern view of the Hippocratic Oath, I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked, nor suggest any such counsel. It violates a fundamental of the Hippocratic Oath. But also, you haven't given me a transcendent standard for determining what's right or wrong when it comes to end-of-life decisions. And as a result, we see all of the information you've given about human reason and how it comes to a conclusion. But I have a, I guess, a personal investment. After 34 years of counselling and as a counselling manager, you've given me a new reason that I should speak to my counsellees. Instead of saying, I'm here to help you deal with your depression, your suicidal tendencies, here I will, I'll help you, refer you to a doctor to give you a medically assisted suicide. So from a personal point of view, it raises some interesting dynamics. Now, you say that there is nothing in Canada to support the slippery slope, all right? 1984, the Dutch Supreme Court, they didn't legalise until 2002, but 1984, the Dutch Supreme Court ruled that voluntary euthanasia was acceptable under certain conditions, followed by doctors. And what did the Remelink report of 1991 find? Doctors had violated those principles. Now, Slippery slope, 2002, Holland legalised euthanasia for those who were competent and conscious, had repeatedly asked for it and were suffering incurably. Secondly, although Belgium had legalised the same year and into 2003, in 2014, the Belgian 
Parliament passed a bill that allows the euthanising of children, no matter how young, so long as they have terminally ill, or they are terminally ill. In Holland, there's a limit. They must be over 12 years of age. But in Holland today, it's accepted that people who are suffering unbearably from mental illness can be killed. And fourthly, I don't know whether any of you read the Reuters news report from just a week ago here in Brisbane. What did it say in October 12, 2016? The Dutch government intends to draft a law that would legalise assisted suicide for people who feel that they have, quote, completed life, but are not necessarily terminally ill. It said a week ago, Health Minister Edith Shippers. Sorry, right? I, I, I think I have to interrupt because I think there are a lot of hands and so you've, you've yeah, put see, a lot on the table. You, so say, you say there is no slippery slope, there is, right. and I have provided you with evidence. Okay, so lots, lots to respond here. I'll, I'll, I'll respond to as much as I can and we can also um, allow some other, other, other questions to come forward and we can come back if we... Um, get through that. So first off, in respect of the Hippocratic Oath, um, that is not the governing document in many ways in Canada, and I would argue here either. It is symbolic because people will point to you th that the Hippocratic Oath is opposed to euthanasia, but it is also opposed to abortion. It is also opposed to teaching women to be physicians. So clearly we don't embrace the entirety of the Hippocratic Oath. So we can't use it as the basis for our policymaking on assisted dying. You asked about what the foundation for um, the legislative reform in Canada is, and for us, we have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and that is what policymaking, the law has to be held to that. And so we have the right to equal protection of the law, equality, and this was a violation of that, because persons without disability can uh, commit suicide. Those with disability cannot end their own lives, and that was a part of the equality analysis. We also have the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, and the prohibition on assisted dying was found to violate that right. So we have a rights-based uh, foundation against which all legislation must be to which it must all be held, and the legislation, the prohibition, was found to violate that. Um, from a philosophical perspective, uh, we are grounded in the concept of autonomy. That's what informs the uh, interpretation of liberty and security of the person. That's the philosophical foundation. Liberal individualism, in many ways, is the foundation of the charter, and so that takes you to allowing some assisted dying in those circumstances where you can still protect the vulnerable, but you can allow capable individuals uh, to have the choice at the end of life. Uh, the slippery slope evidence, um, when, what I would say is people have to be very, very careful in uh, what they read and what they believe and a lot of what is said about other jurisdictions uh, is not true, both in terms of what the law is and what the experience is in those jurisdictions. So for example, um, Belgium does not, in fact, allow assisted dying for all children. The change in the law related to mature minors. Um, so what we have to do is look at the evidence very carefully, test it, and then judge it for ourselves. And what I was suggesting is that 
This evidence was presented in court. All the evidence that you that you raised is not. This is none of that. None of that is new. That was all tested in court. The researchers themselves were present, were cross-examined, and the and the the laws were all looked at too because claims are made about the Netherlands, for instance, saying it changed from um, being restricted to terminal illness to now it's not. It never was restricted to terminal illness, so it didn't change. So. I think it is reasonable to look at bodies like the Royal Society of Canada expert panel that was tasked with looking at the evidence and it concluded there wasn't evidence of the slippery slope and to look at the court, the trial decision in Carter, it's a 400 page decision. She lays out all the evidence and why she believed certain people and not others. So I commend the decision to you. Despite the fact it's long, it's actually incredibly readable. You just need time. Um, but the, the empirical evidence and the review of what changes, if any, have happened to the law is conducted in that decision. And I think it's reasonable for lawmakers to rely on that kind of adjudication of competing evidence and competing claims. And that's what we have done in Canada. You don't have the capacity to make that kind of a case um, and have the evidence tested in that same independent way uh, as we do because we have the charter and you can have the charter challenge. But as you watch the debate unfold here, challenge the lawmakers to be rigorous in their assessment of the evidence, both the empirical evidence of what's happened in other jurisdictions and claims made about changes to the law in other jurisdictions. Um, Colleen Cartwright, Jocelyn, thank you. I wrote down about 10 things I wanted to ask you about, but I promise I won't do that. Um, the audience will all have more questions as well. Uh, just from the last comment, I would just like to say about the, before I ask you my question, about the Hippocratic Oath. We're not actually quite sure who Hippocrates was back in ancient Greece. I think there were about four or five physicians called Hippocrates. But in fact, doctors don't take that oath anymore um, because among the things that it said was that no, um, you should never tell your patient what's wrong with them and no doctor should ever perform surgery. That's, leave that to those whose job it is and at that time it was the barber. Um, so there are many things in the Hippocratic Oath, of course, that have changed over time. And as I said, it's not even said in medical graduations anymore. But um, one of the important things, I think, which you raised about the woman who is being spoon-fed. Mm. I'm just wondering how much people understand about um, what happens when a person enters their dying, even at some point, for example, advanced dementia, mm -hmm. um, when a person loses the swallowing reflex, which is an indication that they are entering their dying with advanced dementia. Um, people, it's the hardest thing for families to understand that A, they're not suffering the pangs of hunger or the pangs of thirst and dehydration, um, and that if you artificially um, continue to provide nutrition and hydration, not only can the person 
um, suffer, you can increase their suffering. If you continue the hydration, particularly as the kidneys start to shut down, you can cause swelling and edema and they can drown in their own body fluids. If you continue to artificially feed, you can cause nausea and vomiting and scarring and all sorts of other things. All bad enough, but more to the point, the human organism is designed to recognise when death is approaching and to produce endorphins that act like a natural analgesic. If you continue artificial nutrition and hydration or spoon feeding when death is close, the body doesn't get the signal that death is approaching, doesn't release the endorphins and deprives the person of a peaceful death. So I'm just wondering how much in Canada there is education of health providers and families about the fallacies around artificial nutrition hydration. Mm -hmm. um, nowhere near enough is the short answer. I think more to come because I think we're going to be, um, there's going to be incentive to do that education that there hasn't been in the past. And that incentive will be that people are going to be accessing, they're going to be doing two things. One is using VSED, the voluntary stopping eating and drinking, to get to the point where you can qualify for medical assistance and dying. So we're going to need clear clinical care protocols about how to make that be as comfortable as possible. We'll also have people seeking palliative sedation because they can't access medical aid and dying. And again, we'll need the clinical protocols for that. And we're also going to have people, and I had a woman in my office the other day, and I was talking to her about her father who has dementia, and he wanted, he, he told her to come see me because he wanted euthanasia. And I had to say to her, uh, there, you can't put that in an advanced directive, but you know what you can do? You can put in, I refuse not just artificial hydration and nutrition, but I refuse feeding and water. And in Nova Scotia, the pro province I'm from, you can clearly do that because in an advanced directive you can refuse personal care. So if, it, if all you can do in your advanced directive, and I don't know this, you, you can tell me, in, in is if all you can do is refuse medical treatment, certainly artificial nutrition and hydration has been understood to be there, but maybe not oral. And that's how Margot Bentley, who's the woman I was talking about, that, uh, who's in this horrible situation, um, She's in BC, and the, the argument part of it, the argument is about is oral feeding, um, personal care, not medical treatment. And then if you can't if you can't control your personal care through an advanced directive, can you actually refuse it? But we're going to have that developing again. We will then need clinical care protocols to deal with that, so that we are keeping people comfortable as they die in this way, because some of them, as you say, like when you're very close to death, you're harming and making things more uncomfortable if you continue the feeding and so on. When they're further away, and it's more like trying to get access to a hastened death where you can't have medical assistance in dying, that could be uncomfortable. So the man who starved for 53 days was not comfortable. Um, we need clinical care protocols to make that passage comfortable. So I think because people are going to be talking about these in the context of the medical assistance in dying, I think it's going to have the benefit of improving education around hydration and nutrition, whether artificial or oral, across the spectrum. And to make a more general point, I think that's one of the benefits of having medical assistance in dying be decriminalized, is it has opened up the conversation on the entire spectrum of end-of-life care in part because people aren't scared that if they're seen talking to someone about pain meds or about 
various things, that somebody's going to think that it was euthanasia, and then the person dies. Well, that was euthanasia, and they're going to get charged with murder. They are comfortable now because it's, it's all legal, and it's regulated, so we can talk about it all. And you start to see end-of-life care improve quite apart from those who access assisted dying. We've seen that in Oregon. It's demonstrated in the evidence in Oregon. I've already had, this is totally anecdotal, I had people saying, you know, really quickly after the passage of the legislation in particular, there were conversations that just had not been had before and care was going to improve because of it. So that's a positive side effect of um, the decriminalization. Lots of hands. Hi, Carmen Heathcote, totally a different tangent. You mentioned, you know, how death certificates are completed, what's written on them. Is there any possibility that insurance companies that were due to pay out a life insurance to a surviving partner, are they going to be able to find any loopholes? Right, right. That was a question um, we thought was going to be a big issue, and it turned out to be a complete non-issue, which is that the insurance, when I was in the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group, we invited the insurers in, and the national insurers came in, and I was expecting them to, we were going to have to have some fight about the two-year window and all this kind of thing. And they said, well, our position is that as long as people follow the law, there will be no exclusion. Right. Like, can I then write it? I literally wrote it down, and then when we went away, I wrote back to them and said, I'm writing a paper on this. This is what you said. Can I quote you? And it, sure. So it got in print, and then now they're like, they haven't backed, they haven't backed away from it either. So they feel that, um, that it isn't going to be an issue for them and that they will pay out. It will just be the normal, uh, the normal proceedings. So hopefully you will have, you can point to the Canadians, uh, to the Australian insurers, and, and hopefully you'll have that same result. Jocelyn, Sharon Dragoning, I'm President of Dying with Dignity Queensland. Thank you so very much for being here. I'm curious around the dementia and Alzheimer's aspect, was there any indication on what a framework would look like that in terms of triggers or, and also the issue of capacity to change one's mind? Was there any indication of how that would look, please? Well, the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group and the Special Joint Committee of the House and the Senate took the position that you should allow a request made in advance of loss of capacity after the diagnosis of the grievous and irremediable condition. So it's not open. It's not that I can write a request, I can say in an advance directive now, if I'm hit by a bus or all these things, I want voluntary euthanasia. can't do that. Because what they were saying is you have to have the information to make an informed choice. You have to know what the diagnosis is and you have to be able to have the prognosis and what's going to happen to you laid out for you. And so both of them put it to be there, but they both said you should be able to have it in advance of the onset of the enduring and intolerable suffering. Um, and in advance of the loss of capacity, because what they what there were there are a number of arguments in support of it. Um, some of them being that you can already refuse treatment through an advance request in the face of dementia. So why should you not have access to medical aid in dying? And our court rejected the distinction. They said this this ethical distinction between withholding withdrawal on one hand and uh, and medical assistance in dying on the other is not sustainable. Um, so the they recommended that it be permitted, and that I think would be the starting point for the conversation in the independent panels that are going to come. 
Um, I don't think they would go back before diagnosis. I don't think anybody's going to be arguing for that. Uh, in terms of the framework, we don't, we don't have the framework for what it would be. Um, in part, the government, I think, I, th I, can, I can get behind them saying we can't do that as quickly as June 6th. We can't do the advance request, because we, we can't figure, quite figure it all out. I would certainly be advocating that it not happen inside the framework of advanced directives that we have in Canada, which are done at a provincial level, and they're very uneven across the country, and there's lots of problems with the implementation. I would say it needs to, it, it needs to be within the framework of the federal uh, regulation of medical aid and dying, um, and so you would, you would complete an advanced request that would follow a very particular uh, format. The idea of the, the issue of changing your mind, that is a piece of advanced directives. That's, that's what is always the case in the context of advanced directives. So long as you remain capable, obviously you can, you can just rescind an advanced directive. Um, once you are no longer capable, you are being bound by a prior wish, but that's, the analysis of that is that's appropriate. Um, that we've chosen in society to say, who should judge? Well, when somebody's incapable, their prior express wishes are what should determine what happens to them, and the argument is so the same should go for uh, medical assistance in dying. I don't know whether uh, the independent group, they haven't even been named, um, is going to recommend that or not. Uh, but that's where, in as much as we have any sense of where, um, where groups might go, we do have the provincial territorial and the special joint committee, and both of them said, after diagnosis, but before loss of capacity, and you should be able to do a federal advance request. Yes, uh, my name's Graham Preston. Uh, it was it was mentioned before, but I'd just like to know what your view is about this recent move by the Dutch government for people who are not sick, but just simply say that they're tired of life or their life is completed allow them to have access to medical assistance in dying. Do you think that's a good move? I wouldn't be advocating for that in Canada, and I wouldn't be setting myself up to judge what the Dutch should do, um, because I think we have to recognize that these decisions are made in the context of a value system in a particular country. And there are really quite significant differences between the Netherlands, Canada, Australia, uh, in terms of the foundational values. And I am arguing, when I'm doing my work in Canada, based on the philosophical foundation of the charter. And that was the argument we made in the Royal Society report, which was, because there's lots of different values you could look to and lots of different um, values you could ground your position on whether you should be allowed to have that, for instance, or not. And what we decided was we should use the values that are our constitutional values, and that that is a reasonable basis for policymaking. So your laws should reflect your constitutional values. And I think you would, you, you would find that the, that the values in Dutch society are different. Um, and I don't know enough about what they are and Dutch opinion on the issue to know whether it would be appropriate for them to go down that path or not. We will, we will not be doing that in Canada. I'm pretty safe. It's pretty safe to say. There are hands up in the middle here. Uh, thanks. thanks for your presentation, Professor. Uh, um, 
I'm, I'm Alan Baker. I'm from Cherish Life Queensland. Uh, just uh, a few comments, and I'd like your feedback, if, if we could. Could um, we keep the comments very short, please, and yeah. get to the question? Because there's still other people with uh, yeah, questions. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to comment on the euphemism uh, used, uh, assisted dying. I would have thought that palliative care was assisted dying, and whereas this is assisted suicide. Um, it's certainly called that in, in North America, physician-assisted suicide. Um, I'd, I'd note that the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, is opposed to the legalisation of euthanasia on, on ethical grounds. Uh, they, the doctors don't want to be complicit in killing their patients. They'd rather kill the pain rather, rather than the patient. Uh, it is a slippery slope. Um, the evidence of that is uh, Lord Walton in 1993 was the chairman of the House of Lords committee looking into euthanasia legalisation in, 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 in the UK. And he at the time was the patron of the Voluntary Euthanasia Society of UK. And uh, he took his committee to the Netherlands and found there were abusers in what was happening there and came back and the committee recommended against the legalisation of euthanasia, which is why it's still... Lots of parliamentary committees in the UK and Australia have looked at this over the years and found that it's too difficult to prevent abusers um, in, in legislation. That's why it hasn't been legalised yet. Um, so, and uh, the other thing is, um, there has been, the evidence is there that what started off as voluntary euthanasia in the Netherlands has become involuntary and non-voluntary. So there is a slippery slope. In fact, you've indicated there's a slippery slope in your presentation, I'd suggest, but because uh, you've talked about the law in Canada not, it was, too, it was too restrictive for you, for your agenda and for your objectives, and so you want to uh, get it amended and so that's a slippery slope in itself, is it not? No. Yeah, OK. Um, so Let me explain. And the, my last point is you mentioned that um, it's cruel to take patients out of palliative sedation in order to get them to give the last-minute consent to euthanasia, to their euthanasia request. So why do it? Why not leave them in palliative sedation? Right. Uh, thank you. Can we have uh, opportunity to for Jocelyn to respond? Thank OK. You. So lots of things here. Um, the expression, you can't always, uh, uh, don't kill the patient, kill the pain, you can't always kill the pain is one thing. Um, and the second is it's not all about pain. It's also about suffering. And you certainly can't, through the best palliative care, control all suffering. Um, the notion of the Netherlands having gone from voluntary to involuntary is simply not supported by reliable, valid evidence. Um, the issue of why you, would, why you would take somebody out of palliative sedation is because some people don't want palliative sedation. Gloria Taylor explicitly explained that she's the woman, she's the woman in the Carter case. She explicitly said that as she was dying from ALS, she did not want to be lying there in a state of palliative sedation for a number of uh, weeks or months. Um, it's not what she wanted. And we are, our, our legal system is grounded in the right to life, liberty, and security of the person and equality. And those say that she should have the right to make that choice. The notion of, um, is this already a slippery slope? I would say no, because I'm not advocating for a change to the law that we, we started with one law and now we're looking to open it up. I'm saying we had the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Carter grounded in the charter 
So it's saying you cannot prohibit access for this group of people under the charter, and then they narrowed that. So what we're arguing for is what the Supreme Court of Canada said. So it's not an expansion of the criteria for access. I would point out, you know, on the abuses front, the slippery slope argument, I used a paper that was published um, by a physician, a palliative care physician in Canada, and he was sort of the crown jewel witness in the Carter case for the crown on slippery slopes. I used that paper in my healthcare ethics and law course um, for the following purpose. I give them the paper and I assign three footnotes to each student and they have to go and check the footnotes because this is a paper that says there are these slippery slopes and it talks about the Netherlands and Belgium and says the evidence, the data shows that we go down a slippery slope. And the students come back horrified because the sources don't say what he says in the paper they say. Uh, and it, and it, an egregious example of this that is that he has a quote from someone, he has a quote from what he claims is a, a Dutch physician saying, we don't need palliative care, we have euthanasia. Well, that's awful. If that's true, that would be awful. You check the source for that, the source is to the United Kingdom Human Rights Act. The source for a quote from a Dutch doctor is a piece of legislation in England. So you have to be really careful about what's said in the literature. It appears, you know, it appeared to be a peer-reviewed piece. It was presented as a peer-reviewed piece. We think, oh, valid and reliable. It turns out it wasn't peer-reviewed. The journal masked that it wasn't peer-reviewed. And this fellow came into the court and he was cross-examined on all of this and the argument was demolished because it wasn't reliable. So, you know, claims are going to be made and that's, that's, that's why it's, it's, it is easier in some senses for us because we have the court. And so you have the advocates who come in and they both present their arguments and the Crown presented their arguments about slippery slopes and we presented our arguments against them and a judge who is independent and very qualified, this judge actually, she happened to be a uh, former dean of law. No. And she took very seriously her responsibility as a judge in the Canadian legal system and she had to assess the evidence that was presented to her by the witnesses and in all of the literature that was presented to her too. And so we, I think, as a society can reasonably rely on that. You're going to have swirling in the debate all the claims about slippery slopes. That will be a big part of what goes on here in Australia. Um, we were fortunate because that wasn't a part of the debate about the legislation because we'd gone past the weather to the how. And then in the how, you're actually paying attention to how do you protect the vulnerable? Because in fact, everybody wants to protect the vulnerable. Whether you are for or against assisted dying, you want to protect the vulnerable. It's just you're actually looking at two groups of vulnerable people. You have people who might be vulnerable, they're not capable, they're being coerced and so on, so you put in place protections to ensure that nobody is having access to assisted dying where they are not capable or they are being coerced. You also have a whole group of people who are vulnerable because of their medical conditions they are suffering, enduring and intolerably, 
And those are people that you want to have access to medical assistance in dying. If, you, if they don't have access, they're vulnerable to an ongoing extended period of enduring and intolerable suffering that they, on their values, don't want. Thanks, Justin. Is there another question? My name's Helen. I'm a consumer of health rather than knowledgeable in health. I was particularly interested in your comments about the heterogeneity of um, communities and taking notice of that and also your comments about Indigenous people being included. And I guess I'd really like you to perhaps expand a bit more on how you see general consumers contributing to this discussion in a meaningful way. So as, as you are earlier in a process, you actually have the opportunity, I think, to do that in, in a better, in some ways a better way than we did in the context of our federal legislation because it was a, a court case and consumers don't have, I mean, they're the plaintiffs, but they don't have part in, in, in the evidence giving in the sense. Um, what I would point to is what happened in Quebec because that preceded uh, Corder and our federal criminal code and what they did was they did a massive amount of consulting around the province and talk. And so anybody and everybody who wanted to participate did. And it was the largest um, response rate to a consultation that they had ever seen. And as a result, their legislation had an extraordinary amount of support across the board because people felt that they had been heard. And it's always really important, too, to remember, like, because somebody doesn't do what I argued for doesn't mean I wasn't heard. It means I wasn't persuasive, but it doesn't mean I wasn't heard. Um, so I think you can do consultations like what they have, have a process like what they had in, in Quebec. Um, and you know, in, in, for us, we will be having these subsequent reviews and various groups and individuals will be definitely playing a part in those conversations. So I think it's about get educated, go to the website, endoflifequt.edu.au, um, and, and, and then engage. Um, and push your parliamentarians to, to give you opportunities to engage. I, don't, I saw the Victoria report and I can't remember off the top of my head whether there were whether that was I know they came to, they did a tour right because they came to Canada and I actually met with them but I don't know whether they've yet done the the public consultation aspect um, or whether if you're here whether the Queensland group will will actually do that but point your politicians to the Quebec process um, and and I would say that would enable uh, better public engagement and and they need to do more with respect to when I was saying the um, um, the indigenous communities, it's more than just putting out a call for consultation with them. You must go to them. You must talk with them about how to talk with them. Um, and it's a different form of consultation. Certainly for us, I, I, I don't know how your consultations uh, have developed here with indigenous communities, but that is, it is not enough because it's, it's not enough to just say, here's a thing on the website, go on and, and fill it in and give us your opinion. You have to do a different kind of consultation with Indigenous communities, in my opinion. Hi, Sandy Deans. Um, I sit on an ethics committee, but from a personal point of view, I think um, 
the sooner we get the sensationalism out of it and there are people who have sat beside someone who has been their partner for 40 years, an intelligent human being who has only a, a certain length of time to live. You know that. You don't have to be a doctor to know that. And for the last two years, all they want to do is to uh, shorten death. It's not shortening their life. All it's doing is shortening death. So if we could have some consultation that is really deep and meaningful from people who sit beside their own person, not somebody they are um, uh, coaching or giving advice to, but somebody close who really needs to shorten death uh, because it is inevitable and I think that's a really, really important part that politicians often miss out on in, in a, an argument like this because they just want the legislation when really they, if they had the facts from without the sensationalism, just real life, it would be so powerful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's certainly a phenomenon that you see which is once somebody has sat with someone who they love who has had a terrible dying process, they become advocates of medical assistance in dying. Um, you also have important moments when people, certain people speak out in a powerful personal way. And an example from Canada is a fellow named Dr. Don Lowe. And he was a public health doctor. And he saw Toronto through the SARS crisis and he was this figure for us of stability and calm and, uh, and thoughtful, careful um, movement through a crisis. Then, he, years later, he got brain cancer and he decided that he wanted to speak out about assisted dying after his death. So his wife, less than a week before he died, I believe, uh, did a videotape of him sitting with you know, his eyes taped open because he can't hold his eyes open and so on and because um, of the muscle, not lack of capacity. And he spoke to the public about the situation he was in and how it was untenable and unconscionable that he couldn't access uh, medical assistance in dying. And right after he died, that was released. And it had this profound effect on doctors. Because I, I remember somebody phoned me, and a doc phoned me and said, um, I've been supportive of assisted dying. I have never said so publicly. Um, because in part, within the medical profession, there is a shutting down of people, physicians speaking out in support of um, medical assistance in dying, and they don't want to be shunned. And he said, I now, I've, Don Lowe was a mentor to me, and I now feel a personal obligation to him to speak up. And he then became active in the movement around um, decriminalization. And it's, it's those very personal, it's either that you are literally at the bedside, or somehow through a video you are, um, you are touched by the person. So people were touched by Don Lowe, people were touched by Lucretia Seals, People were touched in the U.S. by Brittany Maynard. Um, we react to the personal story uh, because we then can understand the suffering. It's not abstract. So I thank you. Thank you for that.
And I think we've got time for just one final question. The gentleman on the side there, Penny. Hello, um, thank you for your talk. My name's Peter Mitchell, I'm, I'm working here at QUT. Um, you mentioned that there was some potential adverse outcomes for some patients due to the ability of institutions and physicians being able to opt out of providing medical, assist medical assistance in dying. Mm -hmm. um, do you, have your group identified any alternatives to that? Yeah. So um, the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group recommended that um, where, that with respect to providers, that you would have a care pathway. And that is that, and this is what we do in Nova Scotia. So a physician who objects calls this one central number, and then that, the person there takes care of a transfer of care to a willing provider. They know who the willing providers are, and they arrange for that transfer of care. That seems to be working. So physicians are traveling around the province in order to help. We're a small province. So some, where, uh, yeah, so the physicians will go to the patient. Now when you have an institution that's objecting, that's a different problem. And the Provincial Territorial Expert Advisory Group, what we said was, if it's a transfer that is acceptable to the patient, um, then, then you should let the institution do that. So the, an example we were imagining is somebody's actually coming into hospital in order to have this. They've, been, they, they've wanted to have their dying process at home, but they want the final medical assistance in dying to be in hospital. Well, I don't, that's fine if a hospital says we don't, we don't want to take those. We've made arrangements with the hospital you know, a block away that you go in there. Fine. But the group said that where it would require a serious dislocation of the patient from their social structure, their supports and so on, like so the, person, the example I gave of somebody's been living somewhere for three years, or where there would, it's physically it's not possible to transfer them without significant pain and suffering, that the institution should be compelled to allow it to happen within their walls. So that's the position we've taken, that group took to recommend. Um, we, are, we are seeing a whole range of responses from provincial territorial governments to this issue. Some of them are sort of wanting to just pretend it's not a problem. Uh, others are taking a more active stand. Nova Scotia has, has only one institution which might even express a resistance and they, they haven't yet, so we're not sure what's gonna happen. Other places have uh, more of a problem and are not dealing with it or are gonna take the position that institutions, publicly funded institutions cannot opt out. Um, that is going to be, I think, a source of enormous debate in the coming months in Canada as we see how much of a problem it is. Um, if it's acute and people like what we had the other day in Vancouver where you had a man who's at St. Paul's, a Catholic institution, uh, they won't do it, so he's transferred to Vancouver General, and he's actually the case I told you where the uh, fentanyl was reduced. Well, they reduced the fentanyl um, so that he would be capable, and the ambulance was delayed, and it took three hours for him to get over to the other hospital in excruciating pain because of that. Uh, when people hear that story, they're, no, no, that, that cannot be. So I think as we see what it means in practice, we will then have to respond and find the appropriate way of responding. We'll also probably have uh, charter challenges because if, if it is, um, if publicly funded institutions are forced to allow it to happen, they may, the Catholic 
hospitals in particular, may launch a charter challenge. Um, they would be, uh, I think, arguing, uh, pushing, a, pushing a rock uphill. Uh, I don't think the court would actually find that, that they have that. Um, but we would, we would probably see litigation started. 